Today, in our snapshots, I want to do everything I can to encourage you. I want to build you up. I want you to grow in the knowledge of God and of His Word so that we may all be thoroughly equipped for the good works to which God has called us. For all of us are called to do good things, and one of the things that we have to do in order to do all the good that God would have us do is we have to understand certain things, and we have to put our mindsets in certain ways. The snapshot that I have for you this morning is of me holding a sword. That's right, I love swords. Swords are cool, I dig them a lot. This is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I'm holding a sword in my hand right now. Only it might not look like it to you because you are looking through your physical eyes. I need you to look through your spiritual eyes and see that I am actually wielding a sword right now. Because we are in the midst of a battle. There is a battle raging all around us. And we're not talking about merely the physical skirmishes that exist in every region of the globe. We're not talking about the skirmishes between nations or between groups of people within a particular nation. I am talking about the spiritual battle that exists. And the spiritual battle that exists is raging and the stakes could not be higher. The stakes in this cosmic spiritual battle are souls. And there are souls everlasting who will spend eternity with God. And there are souls who will spend everlasting eternity apart from God, separated from Him. The stakes could not be higher, but not everybody sees the spiritual battle that we're in. Not everybody has the same level of discernment by which we can peel back and peek behind the spiritual veil. But make no mistake, there is a spiritual realm that overlays the physical realm. The physical realm is very easy for those of us with our five senses to encounter. Anytime we empirically see or taste or touch or hear or smell something in the physical world, we see what's happening. The spiritual realm is far different. In Scripture, sometimes the eyes of the Lord's servant are opened to the spiritual realm so they can see the spiritual reality that overlays the physical realm around us. But whether you see it or not, it exists. And there are players in this spiritual realm. There are angels who struggle and contend on behalf of God Almighty, whispering to us and trying to encourage us to embrace the truth of God. And there are demons seeking to pull us away from the truth. And there are pawns in this battle who don't even know that they're fighting a spiritual war, they're just going about their lives doing what they think is right, but because they have no knowledge of God Almighty, they do not understand that they are actually pawns being moved by our spiritual enemy. It's a sad thing to be a pawn and not even know it, but this spiritual realm is not exclusively the purview of angels, fallen angels, and fools who do not know that they are being used by them. No, it is the realm for you and for me. It's the realm for you and for me. And the way that I want you to get behind the curtain of the spiritual realm is I want you to put on your sanctified imagination. 
I want you to utilize the gift of God-given imagination, and I want you to understand that when physical descriptions and descriptions of things within the physical world, when they have a spiritual counterpart in the spiritual realm, I'm holding a sword, but the world would say, you're holding a book. Yes, but the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You must put on your sanctified imagination so you can understand this incredible truth. And part of the truth is that I am not an innocent bystander. I'm a threat to my enemy. I'm strategic and bold and powerful, and I will not stand idly by. I will advance. I will take ground, and my enemy will hate me. But I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will not be intimidated. I cannot be stopped. I will stand with my brothers in arms because there are millions of Christians all around this nation and even more throughout the world who stand with their swords at the ready to proclaim the truth even when the lies of the world are thrown our way. And I will stand by them. I will stand with them. I will stand next to them and I will advance. And I want you to do the same. But in order for this truth to really sink in, I would like for you to watch this short video, which will hopefully inspire you to join the spiritual fray. I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful I am and I am strategic and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take I ground. Will take I, will advance. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight! I will be wounded! I will be targeted and I will bleed! I will not tire! My wounds will be healed! I will see tragedy! I will feel pain! But I will be restored! My feet will not stumble! My hands will hold fast! I will not be intimidated! inspired to wield your sword of the spirit for we serve a great king though we live in the world we do not wage war the way the world does the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world on the contrary ours have divine power to demolish strongholds 
Oh, we are in a battle. And that battle is spiritual, but we are not going to fight it the way the world fights it. We will fight it with weapons that have divine power. For what we do with our weapons with divine power, and we all have been issued one, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, we will demolish strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 is followed immediately by the command to take captive every thought to Christ by destroying every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And this is how we do it. We don the armor of God, but the armor of God only has one offensive weapon, and that one offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we are commanded to take it. Take up the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All the other pieces of armor are defensive in nature or are such to help us navigate terrain. This is our weapon with which we attack. And yet, this weapon, which can demolish strongholds and is imbued with divine power, is not merely offensive, it can also be used to block, to parry, not just to counter and strike and thrust. This is the word of God. This sword of the Spirit is what you must imagine every time you pick up the Bible. Every time you pick up the Word of God, understand that you're holding the sword of the Spirit. I used to think church was boring when I was your age and your age. I thought church was boring. I didn't want to go. But as soon as I learned that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, church was never boring for me again. I can sit through the dustiest of Sunday school lessons and still get joy and excitement out of it because I'm not merely picking up a book. I'm picking up a sword and I'm training. I'm learning a new piece, a new move, a new kata, a new attack, a new way to defend, a new way to attack, a new way. The most boring teacher still excites me if the subject is the Word of God. I've never listened to a sermon that can't inspire me for every single sermon that involves the Word of God involves the sword of the Spirit. And I am not bored at church because I know full well that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Word of God is so important, but the Word of God describes itself the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's what Hebrews 4.12 tells us. The Word of God, this sword of the Spirit, has all sorts of divine power imbued within it, and we must take advantage the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Word of God is living and active. All Scripture qualifies, and all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, and rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. We have Scripture we have a sword, and it has a use. 
we can appropriately handle the Word of God. We can appropriately handle the Word of God such that we never use it as a weapon to hurt anyone, but we use it as the means by which God will pierce the heart of the sinner and cut to the heart of all those who do not know the Word of God or the knowledge therein. And we will demolish strongholds that set themselves up as pretensions against the knowledge of God with this weapon. We must understand, therefore, that this word of God has some very particular natures. The sword has a nature. We know that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And we know that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We know that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This means the sword has a nature. And the nature of the sword is fourfold. The sword is inspired. The sword is inspired. It's God-breathed. When Paul uses that phrase in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, God-breathed, it's one of the many hapax legomenon in Scripture, which is the Greek fancy way of saying it's a word that is only used once in all of the Bible. It's a unique word created for this entire circumstance. Theophanas is the word. God-breathed. The nature of the sword is that it is God-breathed. And that means the construction of this blade, just as the blacksmith takes a piece of steel and forges out a shape and then puts an edge on it and then heats it and quenches the blade to make it hard and then puts on another finishing edge of heat so that it can be flexible and then it is finished with the pommel and the hilt, and now it is a fully functional weapon. So too, God, the blacksmith of the word of God, has inspired human men to communicate accurately the message he wants for us. For inspiration means that God accurately and supernaturally communicated to us the message he wants us to hear, and he used human authors to get the job done. This means that even though the Bible was written over thousands of years by over 40 different individuals, the consistent message of Scripture is unified. But it also means that the particular books of Scripture have their own voice. John sounds different from Luke, which sounds different from Mark, because God did not overwhelm the personality of the human authors. Rather, he breathed into them so that they would communicate the message he wanted. And this word, this sword of God, has been breathed into just as God breathed into the body of the man in Genesis and gave him life. So too, this book, this sword is life-giving, for its second property is that it is transformative. It is living and active. The Word of God transforms. It's living and active. There are lots of things that are living, and there are lots of things that are active, but the Word of God is both. It's living, it moves, it breathes, it has an ability to affect change, real change, but something can be alive and not active. Something can be alive and be hibernating, Something can be alive and be hiding. Something can be alive and yet remain dormant. 
The word of God is alive and active. It is never dormant. It is always moving and it is always transforming. The more you wield it, the more you hold it, the more you understand it, the more you practice with it, the more you hear it, the more you take it out of its sheath, you recognize the transformative power that it has in your life. And one of the ways that it transforms is by convicting. One of the properties of the nature of the sword of God is that it is convicting. It's sharp and it's penetrating. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's sharp. It can cut through even the thickest of hearts. But it's also piercing. It can be thrust right into the heart. Your heart can be pricked by the word of God. Your heart can be cut by the word of God. And no matter how sinful a person you may be, the word of God can hack and slash through every layer that protects the heart of man. For it will convict. Its nature is to be convicting. But its nature is also to be discerning. When it convicts, it judges. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It sees what is done. Every time you do something and every time you look at the word of God, you are being judged by its standard. And if your thoughts and attitudes are not up to par, they need to be adjusted. They need to be corrected. They need to be fixed. And it is the word of God itself that sets the standard. It's the word of God itself that explains the standard of God up to which we seek to live. Even though we know all men have sinned and fall short of the standard, the word of God explains that we are seen as righteous and justified by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel. And if you use the word of God without having your hearts and thoughts transformed, but you seek to use the word of God as the devil sought to use the word of God against our Lord Jesus while he was being tempted, you will be easily rebuffed. Jesus says it is written and he quotes the word of God. And even when his enemy says, well, isn't it also written? His foolish enemy is grabbing the sword by the sharp part and trying to hit somebody with the handle, which is stupid and foolish. Stop it. There is an appropriate way to wield the word of God, but if your heart and your thoughts are not in line with the transformative power that God has explained in his word, it will not be effective. Oh, the sword has a nature, but the sword also has a purpose. The purpose of the sword is again fourfold. The first is teaching. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. Now the Greek word that is translated in our English translations, teaching, is translated elsewhere into the English word doctrine. The main thing that the word of God teaches is doctrine. Yes, scripture tells us to watch our life and our doctrine closely. And we must do both. But if you are the sort that wants to watch your life closely, but not your doctrine, you just want to love on people, you want to silently preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, it's necessary. The word of God explains doctrine. 
And when questions arise, you must be willing to respond to them. It is the Word of God that taught me about the Incarnation. Oh, I read in the Old Testament that it was prophesied the virgin would be with child, and he would be great, and the government would be upon his shoulders, and he would be Emmanuel. And then in the New Testament, I learned that Jesus Christ is in fact the fulfillment of that prophecy. God with us. And I learned about the doctrine of the Incarnation because of the sword of God. I learned about the Trinity because of the sword of God. I learn about justification and sanctification and glorification because of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is useful for teaching, and what we teach is the gospel. What we teach is doctrine. The Word of God is intended to send doctrine to those who need to hear it, but it is also useful and therefore has the purpose of rebuking Rebuking is when we call out sin and seek to destroy it. Sin is all around us. Sin is sometimes within us. And what the Word of God does is it rebukes sin. Sin must be rebuked, and the rebuke is the aspect of saying, whatever the sin is, is wrong, and here's why. It explains in the most negative of terms why it must be jettisoned and expelled from your life. That is a rebuke. But the purpose of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is not just to rebuke, it is to immediately follow rebuke with correction. For rebuke and correction are like two sides of one coin. You rebuke sin in the most negative of terms and you stop sin and you get it to be ended, but then you immediately correct. You immediately lift the word of God and you explain a better way. For the word of God never just calls you a sinner. It explains how to overcome the sin that you are struggling with. The sin that so easily entangles. It's the gospel that breaks us free of this. It's the Holy Spirit whose very job is to continue to remind us of everything that the word of God says will help us to overcome. And so correction is the positive provision for one who has accepted the negative rebuke. So, stop sin is the rebuke. Live a better way is the correction. That's how the two are married together and interplay with one another. And of course, another purpose for the divine sword is training in righteousness. Training in righteousness, which is growth in devotion. What you must do is understand that you can grow in devotion to God. The more and more you use the word of God, the more and more you hear the word of God proclaimed, the more and more you recognize that you should practice with it. You train. Over and over and over again, you hear the word of God proclaimed, and you recognize that there's a better way. And if you're struggling with pornography, you recognize there's a better way. If you're struggling with envy, you recognize there's a better way. If you're struggling with pride, you recognize there's a better way. And you keep practicing over and over and over so that you grow in devotion, so that you become more effective, and you recognize that you can interpret and you can add and you can apply things to your life because you practice the basic move again and again and again. Every day, every Bible study, every time you come to church, never boring, always practicing with the sharpest of swords so that your devotion grows so great and your ability to interpret becomes so phenomenal that you can improvise, that you can remember, you can memorize, and you can come and attack, and you recognize the basics are that basics. 
and you can build upon them. But how do you know how you can grow and build your devotion so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Well, there are ways to appropriately use the sword of God and there are ways to inappropriately misuse the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The first appropriate way to use the Word of God is exegesis, not eisegesis. The very first time I heard the word exegesis, I was at Ozark Christian College, and I had no idea what it meant, and I was too afraid to ask because other people seemingly knew what it was, and so I sort of thought, gee, are they talking about Jesus' high school girlfriend? Like, who's this exegesis? I've never even heard of her. And I'm glad I didn't say that out loud because that would have been foolish. Exegesis is not a person. Exegesis is a thing. It's a practice. It's a study. Look around the room. You see the words exit? Ex is out of. Exegesis means to take meaning out of Scripture. You take something out of Scripture. It means you let the text win. Let the text speak. Exegesis means reading the text, taking the sword of the Spirit, and letting the meaning come out of it to our lives, whereas eisegesis means cramming our lives into the text. We live in the 21st century Western world in the United States of America, and it's very easy to read Scripture with a 21st century Western mindset which is already based on a Judeo-Christian ethic, into the Word of God, and we try to eisegete, put meaning into the text. Stop it! It's inappropriate. What is appropriate is exegesis. Let the text win. Let the text speak. And we take the text written when it was written, and it transforms us today. Exegesis is getting meaning out of the text. That's appropriate. Eisegesis is putting meaning into it, and it must be rebuked and immediately corrected. Now, the second way to appropriately use the Word of God is with context, not cherry-picking. Oh, context is king. Context is king when it comes to Bible interpretation. Cherry-picking is awful. If you want to know what context is, it's what happens right before and right after a Bible verse. So if you take a Bible verse, and you take that out of the Word of God and just look at it by itself, it has no context. And you might not be able to understand what it means. Never take a verse out of context. Look at the context. Look at what comes right before it. Look at what comes right after it, and that will help you understand what it means. But sometimes you have to go more than just right before it. You might have to read a little bit before it or a little bit after it. And then you ask, how does this fit into the entire book? And then you ask, how does this fit into the entire Testament? And then you ask, how does this fit into the entire Bible? Context, not cherry-picking. Cherry-picking is when you go and you just take a particular passage and you say, I don't really care about context. It uses some of the words I want to use and you try to throw it over and make it mean what it doesn't mean. Well, that leads us to the third use, which is AIM. AIM is a fancy little acronym for author's intended meaning. The author's intended meaning. Did you know that the word of God can never mean what it never meant? Did you know that the Word of God always means what it always meant? And it doesn't change even if you read it differently than you read it. And if you ever have a Sunday school teacher say, what does this verse mean to you? You can respond by saying, I don't care what it means to me or to you or to anybody else except the one who wrote it. 
What did it mean to Paul when he wrote it? What did it mean to Peter when he wrote it? What did it mean to Isaiah when he wrote it? And most importantly, what did it mean to God when he spoke through Isaiah, Peter, and Paul? You look for the author's meaning, never the reader's meaning. The fourth way to appropriately use the Word of God is with boldness, not acquiescence. Not acquiescence. Acquiescence is the fancy word for put your sword away, put it in your sheath, put it on the ground, don't bring it out, because after all, the world would tell you, oh, but the Word of God can be um, offensive. I know you're trying to speak the truth of God, but it could offend somebody right now, and so don't bring it out right now. Acquiescence says, okay, I'll just put it away. Boldness says, no, I will use the word of God. I will handle it rightly. I will apply it appropriately, and it speaks to this situation and every situation. The word of God is inherently offensive. The gospel is deathly offensive to those who are suffering the wrath of God and separation from him. But it is hope and glory to those of us who believe. The word of God is inherently offensive to those who do not understand the word of God. And they will tell us, don't use the word of God. Just put that away. We don't need it as though it were a light and we were acquiescing by saying, okay, and putting it under a lamp, putting it under a bowl. Oh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it be hidden from the world under this bowl because I don't want to offend anybody. Stop acquiescing. Knock the, knock the bowl over, lift the flame up, and say boldly what the Word of God explains. The way we use the Word of God must be bold. The way we use the Word of God must be bold. But the Word of God is under attack these days. You know as well as I do that the Word of God or that the Word of God is under attack. And so today, one of the things I want to do is not just tell you how to use the sword and not just explain the purpose of the sword and not just explain the nature of the sword. I want to show you how to use it in example. So today, we're going to have a time of rebuking and correcting. And one of the things that I'm going to rebuke is something that's been in the news a lot lately. I'm going to rebuke racism. I do rebuke racism. The Lord rebukes racism. Racism has no part in the church. Racism has no part in any civilized society. Racism has no part in any society, but there are many societies who do not understand that because they do not understand the word of God. I rebuke the sin of racism. Racism has no part in the church. Racism is the idea that we would judge as superior or inferior a certain person based on their physical attributes, their skin color. How laughable and foolish is that? That has nothing to do with the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God has something very important to say. And so I rebuke racism, and now I correct those who have the wrong view of racism. I slash, and then I parry. I slash and parry. I rebuke, and now I correct. The Word of God has something to say about this, and I'll be reading now from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All human beings are made in the image of God. And by and by, racism is entirely ridiculous for another reason. There are not multiple races. Do you understand that? 
According to scripture and reality, there is one race, the human race. And you and I all trace our lineage through the same parentage. We all come through Noah. We all come through Adam. We all trace our lineage. There is only one race, but there are many groupings of that one race, and because different groups get together, and because they uh, have children with that particular group, and they go to their particular area, cultural differences emerge, and so it seems as though we have the white race, the black race, the Asian race, the Hispanic race. Foolishness! These are merely cultural differences that are not based on reality. There is one race, the human race, and so racism is a non-starter, first of all, but very clearly, God tells us we're all made in the image of God, so we rebuke racism and correct people's understanding. Now, people who might be different than you, and most of this room is white. Not all of this room, praise God, but most of this room is white people, and yet we are all the same race. We're all the same race, but <sighs> racism is a very, very big deal that's coming out there today. And it's not just the differing cultural conditions, but it's also a time of correcting this morning. You see, there are certain people who are so opposed to racism that they then say there are certain things that you as Christians should and should not do. And here is a thing that as a Christian you should not do, according to the world. You should not say this biblical truth, all life matters. Don't say all life matters. Don't do that because that's offensive. Don't say all life matters because that doesn't get across the idea that black lives matter. You see, right now, the world and the West in particular, America, is thinking about race. We're thinking about these issues. And when we see all the craziness that's erupting all around the world, and here in particular, we recognize not only that racism is bad, but of course black lives matter. Of course black lives matter. And so do white lives, and so do Asian lives, and so do Hispanic lives. So do all lives. So do old people's lives. So do young people. So do unborn people's lives. So do mentally handicapped people's lives. All lives matter. And yet, there are some, even some Christians, who would say, don't say that. Keep that truth of God hidden, and instead, just say black lives matter. Because if you don't say black lives matter right now, here's what's happening. You're not listening. You're not listening, and you need to listen. Oh, I am listening, and I'm here to tell you that black lives matter because all lives matter, and all lives are made in the image of God. But I even have Christian friends who say, mm, don't do that. This is the picture of a shepherd going to get a sheep, and then there are other sheep, presumably 99 of them, who are in the pen holding up a sign that says, all sheep matter. And this is supposed to parallel what happens when somebody says black lives matter and you respond by saying, yep, all lives matter. No, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. And so, here's a Facebook quote from a Christian who says these words, a well-known Christian. If you're a Christian and can't hear hashtag black lives matter, without feeling the need to respond with criticism that all lives matter, then go crack open your Bible and hit up Luke 15. Don't have it at hand? Let me summarize. There are a hundred sheep and one goes missing. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The 99 say, but what about us? Don't we matter? 
Of course, the 99 still matter, but they are not the ones in danger. The one is, I'll say it again, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And it's not just this particular Christian. Christian magazines from June 4th of the year 2020, relevant magazine, a Christian magazine says, Christians, stop saying all lives matter. Stop, stop, stop saying all lives matter. It's not the right time to say all lives matter. And then how about from this week, this past week, from July 1st of 2020, of 2020, we have another Christian magazine. This one is Outreach Magazine that says, Christians, stop saying all lives matter. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. You're not listening. Don't say all lives matter. And then we're told by these magazines and these people a number of analogies. It's sort of like this. If your daughter scraped her knee and said, Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I was running and I, I tripped even though you told me not to be running there and I scraped my knee, do you, do you love me? And he said, I love all my children. You're supposed to recognize that that's the stupid thing to say and instead you're supposed to say, of course I love you. Or if you go to a cancer uh, convention, like how to stop cancer and fundraiser for cancer and you marched in and said, all disease matters. Of course all disease matters, but here we're talking about cancer, man. So let us just talk about cancer. Or if your house is being burgled and you call 911 and the operator says, hello, 911, what can, what's your emergency? Hi, my house is being robbed. My address is uh, 360. No, no, don't tell me your address. D don't you know that all homes matter? All homes matter. And so we're supposed to hear this and understand that we're not supposed to say black lives matter. And the use of the parable from Luke 15 by Christians is sort of like holding the word of God by the sharp part and trying to hit people on the head with the handle instead of holding it with the appropriate part and trying to teach people how to go through. And so what I'm going to do right now is I've already rebuked racism. I'm now going to correct this misunderstanding of Luke 15. So here's what Luke 15 actually says. Let's read it. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it in on his shoulders and goes home? And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I'll tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so, this is what the parable says. Now, let's see if the word of God can be used or misused to see if this makes any sense. So, let's dig right in. First of all, if you use the parable of the lost sheep to try to tell me that I can't say all lives matter because black lives matter, which of course they do, then you're doing no exegesis at all, but you're just doing eisegesis. Reading racial and perceived inequity into a passage that has nothing at all to do with ethnicity or equality is dangerous. Stop it. Eisegesis needs to be corrected. But they also don't care about context. The parable of the 99 comes in the context of tax collectors and sinners wanting to hear Jesus and self-righteous Pharisees trying to say, don't talk to them. Gee, Jesus, you hang out with sinners and tax collectors, so you might not even be worth listening to. 
because they thought Jesus welcomed and endorsed their behavior. The context of this parable is sinners being saved, not a supposed race of people being in danger. But this interpretation also doesn't care about the author's intended meaning and just the reader's meaning. The intended meaning of the parable is that the one sheep left the 99 represents the 99 others, represents sinners. Applying this parable to explain the truth that all black lives matters is ridiculous. Are black people sinners in need of virtuous, woke Christians to save them? Obviously not. Obviously not. It's only God who saves, and the author's intended meaning is about the importance that God places on sinners repenting. Race and inequity are simply not in this parable at all. But most dangerously, there is no boldness. There is only acquiescence with this interpretation. Plenty of acquiescence to an ungodly, unruly mob mentality. And that's what it is. It's a mentality that has to be corrected. It's foolish to disparage the phrase, all lives matter, even though it is a biblical concept. There is a mob of woke, ill-informed cultural crusaders who demand that you say the words, black lives matter, and demand Christians stop saying the words, all lives matter. They say the reason is that we must listen to the aggrieved community and we must understand that they are the ones in need right now. I do understand that. I do understand that. But the real reason that some want us to say the words black lives matter as Christians is the same reason that our Vice President Pence was asked repeatedly, but will you say the words black lives matters? But will you say the words black lives matters? And he said, all lives matter. And he was raked over the coals because of that. The real reason that some people want us to say that as Christians is because it supports hashtag Black Lives Matter is the hashtag of the organization Black Lives Matter. But the organization Black Lives Matter is avowedly anti-Christian in terms of family dynamic and in terms of God's plan for sexuality and gender. And I will not support Black Lives Matter, the organization. Of course I proclaim the biblical truth that black lives matter. All black lives matter. Black lives matter, all lives matter, precisely and only because they're made in the image of Almighty God, which is the only possible reason that any life could matter at all. Of course black lives matter. All black lives matter. Black lives from conception, through the womb, through birth, through death, and into eternity beyond matter. Because all lives matter. I do not need to stop saying all lives matter because I'm not listening. Oh, I'm listening. I'm listening. Are you listening to the truth of God? Are you listening to the sword of the Spirit? Because it seems as though the world would bid me acquiesce. Just bury that biblical truth and just say the words, man. Just say the words Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. Of course Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. Stop saying all lives matter, though, man, because if you do that, you're not listening and you're not woke and you're not sensitive. I do not care about sensitivity except to the Word of God. And I will boldly proclaim the Word of God. And so if you are being bullied into saying hashtag Black Lives Matter, do not acquiesce. The hashtag is connected to the organization which is avowedly anti-biblical in practice. Do not be bullied into saying something. Instead, say the truth that comes from the Word of God. Boldly proclaim the biblical truth that all lives matter. All black lives matter. 
all. This is the clear message of Scripture, the clear message of the Word of God. And so, you can rebuke racism and correct bad interpretation of Scripture. You can do that as a Christian. You're allowed to do it on the internet. You're encouraged to do it in person. But you have to understand that you do not need to hide the truth of God so that you do not offend. The word of God is offensive. Boldly proclaim the gospel and its truth. And so here's how I want you to do that this week. This week, I want you to study, start your study of the formation of the sword. I want you to learn about how this sword was forged. I want you to learn about how it was put together, who the human authors are and how God used them, how we got our English translations, how we went from Hebrew scrolls, how we went to Greek vellum books, and how we got to our English translations today. I would love for you to learn that. In fact, I'm going to teach a class on that. Not right away, but I'm working on it. It's coming. Because I want you to start your study of the formation of the word, the formation of the sword. I also want you to spend devoted time with your sword. Every single day, I want you to get your sword out. Unsheath it, I want you to get it out, and I want you to practice over and over and over again so that you can become so good at it that you understand there are different ways to rightly handle the word of God. And to do that, I want you to memorize portions of it. I want you to memorize a portion of scripture just as you would memorize a kata, a form, a way to use your physical sword. I want you to memorize how to use your spiritual sword. I want you to memorize a verse of scripture. And then I want you to know the context around it. But even if you only memorize that one verse, I want you to be able to say that verse to someone because it can pierce the heart of darkness. And then your explanation can cut through because you're bringing out the context. And I want you to, this week, boldly seek to wield the sword. And by that, of course, I mean share the gospel. Share the gospel. You don't need to get on the internet today and say all lives matter and invite a fight. Nope. I want you to share the gospel because by sharing the gospel, you unsheath your sword and you boldly proclaim the truth. I want you to do it because we're at war, but the war we wage is not a physical war. And so you don't ever need to physically hurt anybody. But I want you to understand that this is the same as this. One is in the physical realm and one is in the spiritual realm. Put on your sanctified Christian imagination and stand with your brothers in arms.